Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Simon Newton. Simon is a former member of the British Armed Forces with numerous deployments, a security consultant, bodyguard to celebrities like Kendall Jenner and Michael Jackson, actor, for example, appearing in Sherlock Holmes, and entrepreneur, having founded his own security company and a clothing brand. This is part two of our conversation. Simon and I will discuss the most nerve-wracking situation during his time as bodyguard, the upsides and downsides of fame, his simple formula for when fame is good and when it's bad, his experiences as in Hollywood movies, as well as his simple, inspiring mindset towards entrepreneurship and life. What does happiness mean to someone who has seen poverty, death, wealth, and fame? Enjoy. You have been a bodyguard too, a quite successful bodyguard. You had some very high profile clients, for example, Kendall Jenner, Michael Jackson. When it comes to being a bodyguard, are there any unspoken rules in the world of a bodyguard that the public would find surprising to know about or even disturbing or just doesn't so unintuitive that they wouldn't have that on their list? It's not so much unspoken rules, but there is a lot to it that I think the public don't realise in terms of it's not, it's for starters, it's certainly not as glamorous as what you may think it might be from the movies or even when you see bodyguards on the news and they're on the red carpet and they're at music awards and they're, they're at film premieres maybe and a charity event and it all looks all nice and glamorous. It is like that. It does, it does, it can be like that, but not all the time. There's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of, we, we wake up before the person you're looking after gets up and you go to sleep after the person you're looking after goes to sleep. So that can be 14, 15, 16 hour days sometimes. So there's a lot of waiting around. So then also using the bathroom, what stage do you, does a bodyguard go to the bathroom? If you've got to be with someone all the time, when's the right time to, if you're walking around a shop, you can't just say, I'll be back in five minutes, I'm going to the bathroom. So you have to juggle toilet breaks which can be difficult sometimes. <laughs> food, sometimes you don't get time to eat. Although food quite often, depends who you're looking after, it depend, uh, depends on how well you're looked after. But um, sometimes it's difficult to have time to eat. By and large, there's a lot of organising, a lot of making sure vehicles are in the right place at the right time, bags are ready to go if we're flying. The airport transfer works properly for when you turn up and get onto the aircraft safest quickest and safest way possible and you have to sort all that out yourself as well at the same time as still being with someone so quite a lot of time spent on your phone trying to sort the next part of the trip out but yeah i'd say that's the biggest misconception we don't carry guns in the uk we don't carry any weapons or firearms or anything like that in the uk so in terms of bodyguards with guns and doing what we see in all these films and tv programs if i actually made a tv program on what a bodyguard did for maybe say a week the first four series will probably be just seeing him standing by lift waiting for someone to come down <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that, that's the biggest misconception is i think although the parts that the public see and they are glamorous they look glamorous they are glamorous and you're driving around in nice cars you may be going on private jet and you're going on private yachts but what i always used to say is the first time you ever go on anything like that it's quite, it's an experience because you've never seen one in real life, if you like, you go on it and you experience it. But anything after that, it's not, it's not my yacht. It's not my plane. 
and if I'm on the plane, I'm flying somewhere where I've got to be working the second I get off of it for maybe a month and we're flying. There's no, although it's, people think, oh, it must be nice flying. And the only thing, the only the thing I used to enjoy with traveling as a bodyguard, and it wasn't all the time anyway, but a lot of the time, was if you went private plane from turning up at the airport to getting on the jet to taking off, it would be about 15, 20 minutes. That was the nicest thing out of it because I just didn't have any hassle of, baggage any hassle of anyone else in the airport wanting to speak to the person i was looking at so it's all very easy now that, that was always the nicest and, and when you when you finish the job and when you go on holiday with your missus and you've got to go all the queuing up again and everything else when you go on holiday you start realizing how much of a luxury that is 15 minutes trying the plane but yeah it's not as glamorous that's my biggest thing so not to put a damper on the industry neither because it is still it's still a lot of fun to be had but it's not as glamorous as what people think how is the type of threat, the threat level that you're then handling? So I would assume from what you have said, that's more of a threat level where, hey, make sure that the celebrity doesn't do anything stupid that puts them into too close proximity with overly excited fans or thousands and thousands of people in, in the middle of them. But it's it did not feel as if these are specific, believable death threats or anything like that to the, the, the people you have been looking after, or am I wrong? No, especially Michael Jackson. I mean, I'm sure over the years, most of them, most celebrities get, particularly A-list celebrities get stalkers or death threats, death letters, hate mail, whatever you want to call it. But at some stage in their career, they normally get a little bit of something like that. But when I was, the people I looked after, I think we had one or two had a, had a stalker, but it wasn't in the UK, it was in a different country. So although we was made aware of them, just in case they did turn up in the UK, it wasn't that bad. But I think the biggest threat when I used to work with these people, it is fans, crowd build up and people just wanting to get to them. And it, it, when it's everywhere you go as well, it wears the celebrity out after a while. And they always try and be nice and be smiling happy because they're happy to have the fan base and the support. But when you've been travelling for 15 hours already or something and all you want to do is go and sit in the airport waiting room to, to get on your plane. So I, I, I did used to have to manage all that because ultimately with Michael Jackson, there was five of us working. With all the other people I've looked after, it's only ever been me. So if I ever got a problem with crowds or anything like that, it's only me that could sort it out. So I used to always try and nip it in the bud really early and make sure we had plenty of safe places to sit. We never got out of the car unless I thought it was safe to do so in the car. I'd never tell the car to leave until we was up in the air on the plane, just in case we come back down. So you just have to try and manage things like that to keep away the threat of just too many fans and overzealous fans. I think that was the biggest problem I had, particularly if we went in shops as well. Quite often, if, as long as it wasn't a big shop, I'd, I'd ask them to close the shop and then we'd go in so we could freely shop without being bothered. But quite often there's people would see you go in and they build up outside. So by the time we go to come out, there might be a hundred people stood out the front waiting for us. All that stuff has to be managed. And when you're on your own, it, is, it can be difficult. What was the situation you were most nervous about during your time as bodyguard? I did, I did a job. I so used to look after Bella Hadid for a number of years when she came to London and We'd just finished an event. She was dressed in a ball gown. I was in a suit. We was in a Rolls Royce with a driver and his hat and all the other bits and pieces will go with it. And there was a free Palestine march in London at the time. And we was driving past it to get back to where we were staying. And she wanted to go and join the march for a bit. 
that does not sound like a terribly wise decision. No. So obviously I suggested that's really not a good idea. Not to mention you're in a ball gown, I'm in a suit, we're in a we're in a, a half a million pound Rolls Royce. It's like none of this fits, regardless of the agenda of the rally. None of this fits. Anyway, she made her mind up. She wanted to go, she wanted to go, she wanted to go. And I kept saying, no, we're not doing it. No, it's stupid. No, we're not doing it. It felt like I got to the stage that if I said no once more, she's just going to get out of the car anyway. So I thought, if I, if she does that, what do I do? I can't sit in the car. I've got to get out. She's committed me to having to do it. So I said, I, very quickly in my mind, I worked out if I was to do this, what's the quickest and easiest and the safest way I can do this and hopefully pull it off. Mm-hmm. So I said to her, look, I'll do it, but you've got to do exactly what I tell you to do. And she said, yeah, what's that? So I said, we're going to get out of the car. We're going to run into sort of the crowd where everyone is. I'm going to have hold of you the whole time. I'm not letting go of you because if I let go, when you let go, so I've worked in a number of protests before with UK British news companies and stuff, what they've covered in London. Um, so I know how quickly these things can spiral out of control. Um, so if I let hold of you and one person gets in front of us, and then it's two people, I mean, before I know it, you're five or six people away from me. I can't get to you and it's just a mess. So I said, I, I will have to hold on to you all the time. She said, so she said, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. So I grabbed her waist. We, we jumped out. I grabbed her waist. And then I just held her the whole time <laughs> in this. It's pictures all over Google holding her. And then she got, I, I let her stay with about two minutes, I think. And then that was it. I just pulled her straight out and said, well, I said, we're going. And she was really good. She was really good. She was happy because she was just happy. She wanted, she did what she wanted to do. And she knew she couldn't stay there for long. But she stayed there just as long as I was comfortable enough to stay there. And that was it. We left. So, yeah, that was probably my worst because given the choice, I wouldn't have done that. But sometimes you can't always do what you want to do. In your line of work, you've likely seen the sacrifices people make for fame or the downsides that fame have. Have they ever made you question whether the cost of fame is too high? Fame... I know a lot about fame. I don't know why I quite like human psychology and stuff like that. So it's something working with these people I've picked up on quite a lot. Fame seems to, it seems to affect everybody differently. Some cope with it very well. Some cope with it not well at all. And and some some of the biggest celebrities we know today don't cope with it very well at all. And you just, you're just not really, you're not, it's not known sort of thing. But if you're, you need to have money, you must have money if you're famous. If you're famous with no money, you've had it. You quite often get where, oh, let's say Beyonce, she won't go on the metro, she won't go on a bus, she's too good for that. I'm sure, actually, Beyonce would love to go on a bus. The simple fact of the matter is she can't go on one. (laughs) If she just steps on the bus, the amount of people without her security team and everything, if if you become that famous, normally it does bring money and wealth with you, but... You got your life has to be different. You've got to have security, which means you're always going in your own car, probably with a driver, private planes quite often, but obviously that's a slightly different level of finance. It's no point. I know there's a lot of, especially with social media these days, a lot of younger people love the idea of being famous, particularly, particularly in this country for some reason, when they go on all these sort of iffy TV shows and everything else, really just to try and get some sort of fame off the back of it, which is fine. But the problem with that type is they will become potentially famous, but they won't have any. They won't make any money from it, and that's when it becomes a problem because you can't move around freely anymore. I think being famous, for me, if I was super famous and I was making enough money out of it, my my sacrifice to being famous would be the fact that I'm making the money. 
So I would think I can put up with that for, for the money I'm making. I can put up with that. But I think being famous is a bit like buying a new car, to be honest with you. Once you've driven it for six months, it's just your car and the novelty's worn off a little bit. Maybe you say you, when you first buy a car, you wash it every week and then after six months, you're washing it every month and you still keep it in good repair and you still drive it around because it's, you need it. But it's not, it's sort of you're out of it more than you're in it, which in, in famous people quite often do. They do spend a lot of time on their home in, ho- in hotel rooms and it's because they just want to be away from the, it's not because they, they want to stay in. They just don't want the hassle of going out. It's a great perspective. I would like to add one. So generally, I think fame is great for business. It should be great for business. You can monetize your fame. It pushes your ego. It's maybe great for getting laid. But the thing, in my opinion, is that what most of the people assume wrongly is that I think fame isn't freedom. It's the opposite. What what do you said? You go into a bus. Yeah. You cannot just do whatever you want. And and also a cage where your your image is isn't your own reflection. You start playing this character you're supposed to be, and you're constantly being judged by others. And one day everybody agrees with you, and you feel good. The other day you're being criticized, and you feel bad. And I know some people very well who have a massive lot of wealth through the entrepreneurial space, and also some sort of fame. Obviously not the Beyonce type of fame where where everyone recognizes you, but still for most people, even that level of fame, although they have the wealth, is at best a double-edged sword. Yeah. I think the best combination is wealthy with no fame. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have the resources. Nobody gives a fuck about you. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter about the rest. Yeah. I think that's if I had to choose, that's what I would go with. <laughs> Very good life wisdom. You uh-huh. basically switched sides. So you are you have become an actor too. Which roles have you played so far? Which ones are you most proud about? And what is the best and worst part about acting for you? The first film I ever got involved in was in 2010, a film called Green Zone with Matt Damon and the director's Paul Greengrass. Um, yeah. Out in Morocco, we filmed that. And at the time, it's because it's back in 2010, I was still a working bodyguard back then. I, I went out as to play a US Special Forces soldier. And it's the first time I've ever been involved in film work. It's the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I went out there for six or eight weeks. Can't remember now, to be honest, about around six weeks. And we did loads of like night battle scenes and daytime. And I remember thinking then, this is, I'm enjoying this. This is what it used to be like when I was working out there, but without anyone shooting back, it's good fun. And I thought well, this would be something maybe I would lo- I would pursue later on in life. Couldn't do it at the time because I was still heavily working as a bodyguard, if you like. So from that day onwards, or from that job onwards, I always had it in my mind that maybe somewhere along the line I would get into film work more and more consistently. After that, I did Sherlock Holmes two, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. I worked on that with Guy, Guy Richards, a director. I worked on that. And again, same sort of thing. I was still working away. There's a little story on that. I got cast to work on the film and I did a first month of shoot, shooting. And then we had something like six weeks off before we was due to shoot again in Oxford in the UK. And I, at the time, I was going on oil tankers and I was doing the protection for all tankers on the coast of Somalia from the pirates. And we would go on 10 day trips on that at the time, fly out to somewhere like Oman, and then we'd go to Port Suez in Egypt on the all tankers. So I was doing that and where, where I had six weeks off, 
thought, oh, I'll jump on one of the, I'll go and do one of these ship jobs just to get keep the money coming in. And we got stuck at sea. I didn't get back for something like eight weeks in the end. So I missed filming. And obviously, because I was at sea, I couldn't get hold of anyone. So when I flew back, I thought, oh, they're never going to believe me. And I went down to the office and said, because obviously, because of continuity and stuff, I can't, you can't just have someone at the beginning of the film. And so I, I explained what happened and said, I'm really sorry, lesson learned, next time I won't take a job in between, blah, blah, blah. And they were really good about it. And they, they let me go back on They in the movie near the end. So they jigged it where I'm basically at the beginning and I'm at the end now, I'm not in the middle. But that was my second film. And then it wasn't long after that, I doubled for Dave Batista in the movie Final Score, which again was a slightly different experience. When you double, you're not seen because obviously you're meant to be the, that character. I still own a private security company now, but I thought, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a bodyguard anymore, and, but I've kind of had enough of it. So I thought, what do I want to do? I went to acting school and got a diploma in screen acting. Then I've also done, I've got to go back to school actually in two weeks' time to, to finish off a fighting qualification for screen fighting. So yeah, I'm better not punch them in, like, really into the face. Yeah, so it basically, yeah, it's like dancing, really, when you fight. And ever since then, I've been pursuing, I've been pursuing acting work, really. I've got two films next year, I think. One in, one's in LA, but we're not sure at the moment because of all the strikes that are going on still at the moment is that actors are striking. So we're waiting for that to settle down. So I still hope, I'm hoping that one's still going to be there. And then the other one's in the UK, which is a UK independent film company we're going to be filming. What type of role would you love to do? What type of movie? Obviously, I always get cast for action stuff. Yeah, it's the first that comes to your mind with your background. So I, I would like, obviously, Bond movie, being, a, being being English, I'd love to do a Bond movie. And not as Bond, being realistic, but something in it. But I've always wanted to, I've always also wanted to do something in a movie, which is a part, but maybe you wouldn't expect to see me there. And I, w I wouldn't want to pursue that avenue as a career, but I'd like to do it once. I'm quite actually, because I'm 44 now, so I'm 45 in a, in a few weeks' time, and you've got to be realistic with age and time. And if I'm typecast for action stuff, and that's predominantly what I get, it's fine. I'm happy with that. But I would like to one day like to do a film when you see me um, as a character that you just would never, you'd never really put me there. I'd like to do that just to test my acting ability as well, because obviously... Although I do a lot of it is fighting and shooting, obviously guns and stuff, I've been around for many years. So a lot of it's not particularly acting for me. So it'd be nice to go and do something where everything about what I'm doing is acting because it's just not me or not what I would normally do. You have a, an authenticity and a depth to what you say and, and how you articulate yourself. And the, the, the one thing, if that's your goal, obviously you have to work with your background and your physical appearance. And that, that puts you into this direction or the stereotype of being the guns person, the security person. But if there is ever, if there's a movie, if there's a role where you need somebody who has this kind of authority, but you need somebody who has the brains and the way to articulate that. That would be a role. That would be a role that you really have to pitch hard then for. Yeah, yeah. Anything like that. Anything. I like being taken out my comfort zone. <laughs> I always do better. I always do better when it's this is your last go. If you don't do it, you've lost it or you failed it. Forty-five. You have. If you want to do that, hopefully, if you stay healthy. But you have forty years, and, and that you can do this. That's a lot of time. I'm blanking on that name of that actor, that super successful actor who just started acting. I think in 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 his forties. 
But I think Samuel Jackson was in his forties. I think there's been a there's been a few which have been early forties where they've actually started. Yeah. Hey, 40 40 years to go and with all your passion and energy, but acting is not the only thing that you're doing. Your entrepreneurship, your business is the other thing. Maybe before going deeper into that, first of all, how have your different experiences in your youth, in the military, as bodyguard, as an actor, shaped your thinking towards life and entrepreneurship? I think everything from being maybe the age of probably 17, 18, I think everything I've done in my mind, I've actually run it as a business. Even when I was in the military, I still had like a chart on my wall in my room, which was said the courses I wanted to try and get to get on over the next two or three years. And what I wanted to achieve as a soldier and what rank I wanted to get to in promotional courses, it's like a business plan. And then when I started the private security company, I still have today in 2010, I think it was. And obviously that's run like a business. And then when you work as a bodyguard, as a freelance bodyguard, you can run that as a business as well, because once a job's finished, you're unemployed. You could do two weeks with someone, but the next day you haven't got a job again. So I, I used to have to market myself, get myself out there for people to call me and want to use me. I used to pretty much run that like a business as well, really. So I think, I don't know where that's come from. I used to just look at everything, analyze everything, research everything. And then if I thought I could do it, I would do it, but once I'm doing it, I'm doing it. There's no going back. And even if it means canceling a holiday tomorrow. It's amazing how much in the general perception entrepreneurship is about that one genius idea that you have or this one insight that nobody else has. And of course, if you have something like that, that can put you ahead. But still, 90% of the game is just repeatedly doing what others are not willing to do, not do anything seriously stupid that puts you back to zero, not giving up once it gets boring and mundane because the excitement at the beginning of a project is always higher than it is once the rubber hits the street and you figure out all the things that you didn't know about and all the problems that come crushing down. It is what you explained this in a very methodological way. What do I have to do? Set out to do it. Don't stop just because you, you're not successful after the first 10 days or six months. And to the other point that you say about the interest and passion, I always struggle with that. On the one hand, I'm 100% what you say. You, if you don't have a personal interest in it, it's it makes it much harder for you to keep on the going through the grind and mm. through the hard work. On the other hand, at least I all often run into the trap where I'm if I'm very passionate about a thing, then I overemphasize the good things and the positive signs around it and ignore the negative signs. And to some extent, you need to do that as an entrepreneur because most of the time you're doing something where if you would look very rationally at the odds, you wouldn't do it because still the more likely case is that it's not going to work out how you planned it. But I particularly need to be very cautious about being getting overexcited about something that I'm passionate about, but misjudging the odds behind it. I think everyone does that. Everyone does that, though, don't they? It's the same as even if you describe, no one ever says in any story about anything in any walk of life, no one ever really says the rubbish bits anyway. It's always, if you said, how was your wedding? And everyone would say, oh, it was an amazing day. We had a really good time or whatever. But if so, I don't know, maybe some of the, unfortunately, some of the, the the woman fell over or stolen some of the wedding gifts or something. You had a couple of gifts short. It's stuff like that. You don't, 
you don't really put it in, do you know what I mean? You don't, you don't, there wasn't enough parking out the front or something. You wouldn't say all that, you just say all the good bits. And I think that's the same when with entrepreneurs. As soon as you start any business, you're up against it anyway, regardless of what it is. As soon as you decide to do it, you're, you're up against it because, like you said, a lot of them fail. But anything good, um, anything, anything, anything was good, it isn't easy. Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. If anything, if it's easy, I don't want it. I'm not really interested in things that are easy. That's the way I look at it. Because it means lots of people could be doing it. And also, when things are easy, the reward at the end of it is not normally as good neither. So maybe you can't, maybe you can't, if it's an easy business, maybe you can't scale it into something magnificent later on because it just doesn't have those legs in it. Any, anything good is hard. It's as simple as that. You got, it's just, it's what it is. It's a good rule in life that if you are able to put yourself intentionally through discomfort that you're going to make it far in, in life because that that that's that that's the key thing can you go through discomfort for a prolonged period of time they i think that i think they said the most progression is made in anyone's life is when you're taken out your comfort zone when you go and do something that you don't want to do or wouldn't normally have done that is when you'll make the biggest leap in life with whatever it is you're doing and so many people get to that part of the start of the comfort zone being taken away and when they back off because they don't want to they don't want that feeling but all just a few big decisions i've made in my life which have taken me out of my comfort zone they've always smashed me on through to the next level in life really i don't think i've ever had one which put me backwards with your experience across various fields and also physical conflict death what does happiness mean for you happiness that's a good question. What does it mean for me? I don't get rattled by much. I'm not bothered by much because of, I think over the years of what I used to see a lot of, I understand that how cheap life can be. I understand how fragile it is. And also understand how people around the world live, not everybody, but some or have lived and not just in poverty stricken countries, but also obviously countries at war. When I look back at things I do, certainly in the UK, if I think, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me? It's never being killed. When I used to work out in the Middle East, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me in a minute? You're going to be killed. I don't get that anymore. So anything else less than that to me is not really a, there's a way around it or it's just not a big deal to me. So happiness for me really is getting up every day and doing what I want to do. Is there a decision you would take differently in your life if you could assuming there's a surgical way in that you could change that decision there's no butterfly effect um there's a few things not a decision i would change i'm very happy with what i've done i chose to do what i did at the time for whatever reason i thought at the time um and everything as far as i'm concerned everything's worked out pretty well there are a few things i would have liked to exploit it a bit more just to see where i would have gone with it and i know like when i was in the military i mentioned earlier i left early really to, for the job I'd have been interested to see how far I would have got and how much longer I would have stayed in the army had I not left to do the private security job. So I do wonder about it sometimes. I don't ever wish I stayed in though. I'm glad I left and did what I did. But I do wonder sometimes whether or not, how long, what would I have done? Where would that have taken me? And the other one is, I quite, and this is something I wouldn't pursue now because of just time and I could do so many things as it is, but... Um, Medical, working in a hospital, like a accident emergency consultant or something like that. I would like to have done that because I have quite a keen interest in, in the medical side of stuff, fixing people, if you like. But the problem with that is I probably didn't realise that until I was around early 30s, maybe even mid-20s to early 30s. 
that for me to go and do that now and study and be able to get that job, I'd be giving far too much away to be able to. So it's just not a good swap for me now. How about, so you're turning 45, you, you said, how about in the next 10 years, so until you're 55, you did those movies, you played a good role in a James Bond movie, you scaled your business and you're free at that point of time. So going back to the conversation, less on the fame side, more on the financial resources side yeah. so that you say, okay, fuck all of you. I'm going to go back to your university or something like that. I'm going to go into the medical space. Yeah, I'd like to try and pick on things that are difficult to get in with and difficult to do. And then you won't always do it, but that's fine. As long as I try my hardest and I've done everything I can do, if the answer is no, then I think I couldn't have done any more than that. At least I lay in bed at night now going, I can't get in that because I've tried and they said no now. But one thing I always do is, when can I try again then? It's just you've got perseverance, be prepared to get plenty of knockbacks, but never take it personally and just crack on with it. And it will... As soon as you give up on something, you haven't got it anymore. And that's a fact. Simon, where should listeners go to learn more about you or your business? So I have a few social media. Simon.Newton is probably the best one for Instagram. And on there is my link tree as well. So that will take you to Simon Newton London, which is the clothing brand. Thank you so much for taking the time, Simon. That's all right. You're welcome. Thank you. This was part two of the conversation. In part one with Simon, you will get to hear how his quite unusual life in the army as private security and as bodyguard was. The most holy shit moments, how it feels to be under the constant threat of attack, and his best tips, how to stay out of physical conflict as untrained person in urban areas, as well as what to do if you can't avoid the physical confrontation. That episode is both entertaining and highly practical. 